Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation, a mission, and a mandate to stand up, to speak up, and speak out, and get in the way. Get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. And of course I'm quoting John Lewis, who I think they're carrying over the Edmund Pettus Bridge today during his funeral. Oh really? He was a, a civil rights activist. He was a Baptist preacher, ordained preacher. And he repeated the line that I quoted there throughout his life. And of course he's seeking throughout his life to cause good trouble. And I believe uh, Lewis himself would credit this to Christ. That he sees a Christ-like challenge to evil in the methodologies that the civil rights workers would put into place. And he understood the Gospels do not teach non-resistance to evil. Though this is the interpretation, and I'm going to come to these words of Jesus in Matthew that are so often misinterpreted. Everything about Christ, everything about Christianity is resistance to evil. And so I think what we have in the life of Lewis is really the embodiment of Jesus' mode of nonviolent resistance. And that's the correct translation, I'm going to argue, with Paul. Paul certainly says this in Ephesians 6, resist evil. And I think we need to go back and look at what Jesus says in Matthew. In this verse, Christ provides the sort of examples that Lewis would employ. He, used, he was arrested some 40 times. And of course he was nearly beaten to death on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And so the first question here is how do we reconcile? Let's look at the two verses. In chapter 6 verse 13. How do we reconcile this verse with the Matthew verse that often gets quoted? Ephesians 6.13 Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Okay, now let's look at Jesus, another verse, and this is in Matthew 5, 38-43. You've heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So the traditional interpretation of Jesus saying, 
do not resist an evildoer has been non-resistance to evil. What a grand, tragic mistranslation. And such an odd conclusion given that Jesus himself resisted evil with every fiber of his being. And that the gospel is all about resisting evil. That's the whole point. And so the 5th century theologian, I think this is the beginning of the history of this bad translation, Augustine, he said, oh yes, the, the gospel teaches non-resistance. Now he sidestepped this and he said, but we don't do self-defense, but he noted if someone is attacking my neighbor, well then the commandment requires me to defend my neighbor by force of arms if necessary. And in this way, Augustine opened the door to just war theory, the military defense of the Roman Empire, the use of torture and capital punishment. And following his lead, Christians have ever since been justifying wars, justifying violence, fought for nothing more than, or committed for nothing more than national interest. And so let me state point blank, the gospel does not teach non-resistance to evil. Augustine is wrong. And in fact, the New Testament informs us how to resist evil, and that's the way I want to go back. Clearly, that's what Paul is doing in Ephesians. He's saying, okay, here's the way you do it, and I believe Jesus is doing the same thing. He's counseling resistance, but without violence. The Greek word translated in Matthew 5.39, to resist, it means literally to stand against. And what translators have overlooked is that the stand against, the anti-stenai, is most often used in the Greek version. It's a technical term for warfare, for violence. It describes the way that opposing armies would march toward each other until you know their ranks meant and then they would take a stand with their sword drawn. That is, they would fight. Ephesians 6 is using this imagery. In other words, he's using the same imagery, but he's saying, fight. But of course, what he means is it's a very different kind of engagement. Take up the whole armor of God. And of course, this armor is not literal sword, but it is the spiritual sword. That you can stand on that day, stand firm, and Paul will repeat that. And so the images of soldiers standing the ground, refusing to, to flee, and even the Christian engagement then is not fleeing from evil. It's standing and facing the evil nonviolently. And so it's not to resist violently, it's not to revolt, it's not to rebel, it's not to engage in an armed insurrection. And so the Bible, you know, the, actually we get this translation in the King James. The King James version is paid for by King James, right? And he did not want any recourse against his or any sovereign's tyranny. And so when he commissioned the translation, he noticed in the New Geneva Bible, 
what he regarded as a seditious translation of this particular verse. He says it's dangerous, it's traitorous, but in the marginal notes of the Geneva Bible, the right to destroy a tyrant. Well, King James was something of a tyrant. And therefore the public had to be made to believe that there are two alternatives and only two, flight or fight. And Jesus is made to command us in this bad translation according to the king's men to resist not. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus, in this understanding, appears to authorize monarchical absolutism. Submission is the will of God. And unfortunately, most modern translators have meekly followed in that wrong translation. So Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. We are not to let the opponent dictate the methods of our opposition. He's urging us to transcend both passivity and violence by finding a third way. I think this is the way of John Lewis. This is the way of the civil rights marchers. This is the way of Gandhi. This is the way of Tolstoy. This is the way of Martin Luther King Jr. It's the way of Jesus. The correct translation would be the one that we find in some renditions. Do not repay evil for evil. Don't react violently against the one who is evil. That's the idea. It's saying, oh, you're going to resist, but you're not going to resist with violence. And so as Walter Wink notes, Jesus actually is giving us three modes of resistance in the verses that we read. Three ways of exposing the underside of an unjust law or an evil situation. You know, first of all, if somebody slaps you, you know, who slaps you? Well, it's probably a master slapping a slave. It's not two equals, you know, punching it out. And by turning the other cheek, Wink argues, the servant is making it impossible for the master to backhand him again. He stands his place. He absorbs the strike. He absorbs the shame, the degradation, but he's unyielding. He doesn't move. He stands firm. He just turns his other cheek. The left cheek now offers a perfect target for a blow with the right fist, but that's not the point. In other words, to hit with the closed fist is something that equals do. This is a slap. This is a humiliating slap. And so this is no passive acceptance, but it is in fact a form of defiance, which renders the master incapable of asserting his dominance. He could beat the slave, but in, in a sense that would be to lose. One standing firm and resisting evil, not through uh, violence. I think this is an example of what Paul's talking about. With the armor of truth, you know, John Lewis, it was amazing. He, people had asked him when he was beaten so many times, he said, weren't you afraid? He said, you know, I lost all fear. At some point, I, I, I wasn't afraid. And I think that's what we get in the armor we're told to put on here. Paul repeatedly tells us to do what Jesus is describing. Stand firm. Don't cave in to violence, but don't flee from the violence. 
I guess the master could do what the police did to the civil rights marchers. You know, you've seen that video, right? They just trample them. The master could beat the slave. But the violence, and we see this on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, the violence is a defeat. The slave is not cowed, and the marcher's cause is proved just in the violence. The violence done to the civil rights marchers exposed to the world the inherent racism of this legal violence. And so troopers swinging clubs and throwing tear gas, they charged the marchers, they ran them over, and one of them hits John Lewis right on the head, nearly killed him, and he suffered all his life, the scar there. Yet less than 10 days later, you know, who won on the Edmund Pettus Bridge? 10 days later, after the world witnessed the horrific lengths, the racist would go to Lyndon B. Johnson, signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. That was the whole point of the march. So the nonviolent movement for civil rights, like the nonviolent movement of Gandhi, discovered or rediscovered, I think, the form of resistance that Jesus is teaching here. Going the second mile, turning the other cheek, giving both cloak and undergarment, culminating, of course, this is what the cross is about. It is an undermining of evil through an absorbing of the evil. So in the instance, you know, if a creditor, and this is a court case, a creditor could take a poor man to court and he could demand that he give him his cloak as a kind of collateral. This is actually from Deuteronomy 24. Jesus is not suggesting, you know, oh, well, just confound the problem in offering your undergarment as well. You understand, there's no clothes left. Once you take the outer cloak, you take the inner cloak. He's suggesting that being stripped naked exposes the inherent injustice of the situation. Here is the legal equivalent, I think, of letting the blow land and turning the other cheek. He's telling the impoverished debtors who have nothing left but the, literally the clothes on their backs to use the system against itself. Exorbitant interest, and they estimate that interest was somewhere between 25%, that's still a lot, to 250%. Combined with the taxation of Herod, Peasants in Galilee were being dispossessed of their land by the powerful. And Jesus counsels them to give over their undergarments. You know, they take you to court. Well, just strip off your undergarment and give that to them too. And of course, you're being left naked in court. Nakedness was taboo in Judaism. And shame felt primarily not on the one who is naked but the one viewing or the one causing the nakedness this is Genesis 9 you know you don't leave your brother naked and by stripping the debtor exposes the injustice of the situation he brings shame on the creditor so too I think this is the whole point of the marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the other occasions the civil rights when they would sit at the counter for whites only 
it forced the authorities to decide, you know, between you can allow the marchers to come across and in doing so acknowledge the legitimacy of their protest or you can violently stop it and thus you expose the race hatred to all of the world and the equivalent of turning the other cheek and allowing them to expose their helplessness or the equivalent of being stripped naked really being stripped naked of their rights on the Edmund Pettus Bridge it exposes the ugly underside of those who covered themselves with the law, right? Far from the usual interpretation, you know, Christians, that we're not to use the law. Oh no, that's, that's a complete misunderstanding. Jesus is saying you are to use the law to expose the injustice. Paul continually uses the law Remember, he has the city officials come and publicly apologize to him because he was a Roman citizen and they had beaten him without trial, without permission. That's a, a capital offense. And so the point is to expose the perverseness. Paul will talk about suspending the law, exposing it. And there's an excess to the law that brings about sin. I mean, that's the problem. The law is going to be inadequate, both personally and corporately. And so Lewis devoted his life, I think, to exposing, in a very Christ-like way, the underside of racist laws by deploying Christ's nonviolent resistance and Christ's love. He was a loving man. I think, in a, in a very Christian way. Lewis would refer to the beloved community. And of course, this is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the cowardly. You know, but one of Lewis's most significant acts, and I think it confirmed the other half of this, the love of enemies. And he always cautioned against, you can't become bitter. You can't hate people. Even the people that are beating you over the head, you can't hate them or you end up being like them. At the end of his life, and you can actually go on YouTube and see this, that he will appear with a guy who is uh, a Klansman. He's one of the guys who actually helped beat him up. It was in 1961, and Lewis is as part of the Freedom Riders. They entered the waiting area, the whites only waiting area in the Greyhound bus station in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And of course, they're protesting segregation. Elwin Wilson was one of the group, and he came in and he helped beat up Lewis. And actually, there was a white companion there with Lewis. They beat him up, both of them. And this is Wilson's description. He said, what happened was, after he was beat and bloody and all, the policeman came up and asked him, he said, do you all want to take out warrants? That is, do you want to press charges? And Lewis said, no, we're not here to cause trouble. We're here for people to love each other. And Wilson said he never forgot that his whole life. And of course, he began to examine his own life. And he later discovered he wanted to search out and apologize. He became repentant and he discovered, he didn't know Lewis had become a congressman. 
and he sought him out in the United States Congress to ask for his forgiveness and of course this is the magnanimous nature of John Lewis he says that he did forgive him and they sat and they cried together they wept together you can go uh, years later Oprah Winfrey had John Lewis and Wilson on TV together and there's a still photograph of the two of them sitting there and John Lewis has his hand resting on the man uh, who beat him maybe this is an instance of Jesus example of going the second mile and of course this is the third thing here any bystander could be pressed into service but there was a limitation in terms of distance one mile you know they could compel you to carry their pack or their burden but to go a second mile was actually an infraction of Roman military code and the offending soldier could be there were laws for this you could be flogged you could receive reduced rations you could be forced to camp outside the fortifications I don't know, understand this but it, this is one of the punishments that you would be forced to stand all day before the general's tent clutching a clod of earth the oppressor then has been open to punishment should the civilian who goes two miles file a complaint the very possibility means that the one oppressed by this law he's turned the tables he's put the one who would oppress him under his obligation and though Lewis or an anonymous citizen in this case I suppose you could act vindictively Lewis could have said to the police officer yes I want to press charges against all of these people but in Jesus command and I think in the example love is the final arbiter love is not averse I think we need to get this it's not averse to turning round the oppressive momentum but not for revenge but to create the mutual recognition of humanity and maybe you do foster a bit of uncertainty you know maybe when the policeman says oh do you want us to press charges you create the possibility for repentance this is the teaching of Paul this is the teaching of the New Testament this is the meaning of Romans 13 so often misunderstood it calls for a response that like these verses it's often taken as acquiescence to the state Paul is advocating Jesus is advocating a world revolution on the basis of a kind of jujitsu subordination and this revolutionary uh, subordination it is subversive to the powers and we know this historically that it's going to subvert the power of slavery it's going to subvert the powers the traditional roles the degradation of women it's going to subvert the power of the oppressors subordination to the state the Roman state this is the state that crucified Jesus it would behead Paul it's going to kill all but John of the original disciples and the idea is that through the church the idolatry of the state 
the injustice of the state is going to be revealed. Not through violent, but through nonviolent civil disobedience. Nonviolent resistance. Slaves would undo slavery. Women would undo oppression. Groups suffering discrimination. You know, Greeks, barbarians would undo discrimination not through becoming themselves the masters, not through oppressing and discriminating, but by following the example of Jesus. You know, what, was, what is it that Jesus is telling us to do? You do, in fact, submit to the powers, but don't think that submitting is obeying. Those are two different things. You're overturning from the bottom. Paul says, since the children share in flesh and blood, he also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. This is the whole purpose of Jesus' coming, is to perform this reversal. And we are to continually participate in this reversal. Slavery, oppression, discrimination, Ultimately, death is endured in light of a kind of disempowerment because we know through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we're enabled to do this. And so Christ overturns the kingdoms and the powers, not by outpowering them, not by calling down a legion of angels, but by disempowering them from the bottom, by revealing their kind of powerlessness, you know, his death results in the resurrection. And so to continue to live as masters and oppressors is to continue on in the slavery to fear. You know, what is it we fear in being found at the bottom? Ultimately, I think it's the fear of death. And the church is made up of those conformed, Paul says, to God's character, transformed in mind by being a part of this revolutionary community that are no longer in bondage to the fear of death. But unfortunately, I think in the eagerness to exercise power in the way of the world, Christians have sometimes confused, they've emptied Christian faith of its subversive, subordinate, disobedient power. This Christianity, I'm afraid, no longer poses any threat or challenge to the principalities and powers. It's simply a support of the empire. You know, take an ex extreme example, the idea that Romans 13 is some sort of absolute mandate for obedience. Christ would have remained in the tomb because the Romans put up a seal. You're not to break this seal. And when Christ was raised from the dead, he rolled back the stone, or the stone was rolled back. The seal was broken. Here was the ultimate civil disobedience, the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection sets the tone of relationship between human kingdoms and the kingdom of God. The one crucified outside the city is the one who establishes an alternative city, an alternative rule, through an ultimate act of civil disobedience. The Roman state, you know, it commanded that Jesus be dead and be silent. And Christianity is founded on the civil disobedient proclamation, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is raised. And the first command given to the apostles when they go out and preach is that they remain silent about the resurrection. 
If they were obedient to the state, there would have been no gospel. They informed the powers that they would not and could not obey. They joyfully, they submitted joyfully to the punishment. And they said, oh, now we have been punished like Christ was punished. And that's Paul's point in Romans. It's his point in Ephesians. It's Jesus' point. Subordination and obedience, those are two very different things. Jesus submitted to Roman crucifixion as the ultimate act challenging Rome. So too, Paul would submit to a Roman beheading as his final and ultimate act of subordinate defiance. And so Jesus in Matthew is not giving a non-political message of some sort of spiritual transcendence. His is a worldly spirituality in which the people at the bottom of society or under the thumb of power learn to recover their humanity through nonviolent resistance. John Lewis devoted a lifetime, I think, to demonstrating and modeling the power of nonviolent resistance to defeat evil. These are his own words, and I think these words are a kind of legacy for John Lewis. He says, the irony is that a bridge named after a man who inflamed racial hatred, that is, Pettus was a Confederate brigadier general, he was a leader of the Ku Klux Klan. He says it's an irony that this is now known worldwide as a symbol of equality, a symbol of justice. It is biblical, Lewis says. What was meant for evil, God used for good. And I think Lewis's deployment of Christ's nonviolent resistance ensured that he could be so used for God's good purposes. But this is the call to all of us, right? This hard way of standing up to evil, but not giving in to the methods of evil, not to become evil ourselves, that's the call to all of us. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation, a mission, and a mandate to stand up, to speak up, and speak out, and get in the way, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.